Cinderella is running away from the ball. And both we, and I think she, asks the question of why. <laughs> Welcome back, No Script listeners, to another episode of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everybody. It's an exciting day to do a No Script episode, as it always is, but especially right now because we are in the middle of Magic Month. Yeah, Magic Month! For those of you who have tuned into the previous episode of this third in a series of themed months over our three seasons, uh, you know that we have talked about Midsummer Night's Dream, and we have talked about Prelude to a Kiss, and we are now moving on to number three, Into the Woods by Stephen Sondheim. That's right. So when we were talking about Midsummer Night's Dream, we said that, you know, if you polled people what plays involve magic, we think that most people would probably say Midsummer Night's Dream, that that's a very popular show that has magic in it. It's got a bunch of fairies. People can pretty easily think of that one. I would guess in competition for that title coming to people's minds is this title, Into the Woods, the Sondheim and James Lapping script. Yeah, I would agree. Probably this one and Wicked would be the ones in our vernacular that are like, oh yeah, magic are in those plays. So uh, yeah, I'm excited to get to talk about this one. I've known it for a while. Obviously the movie came out. We'll get to all that, but I'm excited to jump in to the conversation. But before we do, I would like to refer you all over to our Patreon page. As many of you know and have heard before, we love doing this podcast. We love having these conversations. It's a labor of love for us, but alas, it is not a free labor of love. There are fees associated with uh, producing a podcast, ordering scripts, and just the hosting fees as well. So, for those of you who have been longtime listeners or who are just starting, if you are looking for a way to be a part of No Script, the podcast, and ensure its longevity and, and uh, continued conversations around theater's best scripts, head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. You'll find a number of tiers over there. We have uh, one for as low as $1, and that $1 actually helps us out a whole bunch. Jacob is fond of saying we, he knows people who would just hand him $12, which would be what you would pay in a year of listening to no script podcast if you were at that $1 Patreon level. So, Head on over there and hand us $12 over the course of a year. <laughs> <laughs> we will love you for it. You will get to enjoy patron-only posts that are occurring over there and get to be part in a more significant way of the NoScript community, which we'll appreciate. Now, yes, back to the script. Back to the script. Into the Woods, uh, like we said earlier, Sondheim musical. If you're a Sondheim fan, you probably also love Into the Woods. It's really characteristic of his music writing style. There's lots of uh, like rhythmic speech. There's lots of characters overlapping each other, lots of repeating themes, lots of what's called thought process music writing, which is where characters use musical numbers to think through their choices and actions. That's a real Sondheim characteristic, and that is all over this play. It premiered in 1986 at the Old 
Globe Theater in San Diego and then moved to Broadway in 87. At the 88 Tonys, it won Best Score, Best Book, Best Performance by a Leading Actress, and Best Lighting. Uh, that leading actress was jo- Joanna Gleason, who, if you're a Friends fan, she's that Rachel's boss that's the smoker. That's her. So she was the baker's wife in that Broadway run that won the Tonys back then. Since then, it's had a long and storied life. Into the Woods is produced anywhere and everywhere. It's an awesome ensemble show. It's pretty clean throughout. So community theaters, high schools, educational theater do it a lot. Regional theaters do it a lot because it's really popular. There's been a series of revivals on Broadway and in London. Several of the London revivals won Laurence Olivier Awards in 2002, it was revived on Broadway and won Tony Award for Best Revival of a Musical. All that has happened over a long life for this script, but probably right now, its big name recognition punch is the 2014 movie. Uh, Disney produced a movie with a absolutely packed cast. Just an absolutely exploding with talent cast. These are some of the folks that were involved in the musical. This is not everybody, but this is just some. Obviously, you got Meryl Streep. She played the witch. She was incredible. Anna Kendrick, Emily Blunt, James Gordon, Johnny Depp, Chris Pine. And again, that's just some of the list. The the movie musical is exploding with talent, and and it did pretty well. Yeah, it did. It it, it uh, I I forget if there were any Oscars around it. Are if you if you it was nominated list, for but... a ton of Oscars that year. Yeah, yeah, yep. But yeah, the the film did quite well and uh, was kind of is part of the more recent move by uh, these uh, kind of Broadway level shows to be produced into movies. So yeah, it's a, it's an important show. One that a lot of people love and are connected to either from the songs that are in it, which are very emotional or from being in the play and in engaging with the themes, which we will engage with in a moment, but enable to enable us to do that a little bit better. I'm going to synopsize real quick, the scope of the plot, which should be a pretty easy, synopsis in comparison to some of our other synopses that we've had to do, like maybe Midsummer. Um, this play um, is a mashup, basically, of a bunch of fairy tales. Sondheim takes... I don't know. I'm going to say a number. We'll say 11 or <laughs> 9 to 11 different <laughs> fairy tales and just like smashes them all together in a fairy tale world and is like, what would happen to these folks if they all had their moment of trial at around the same time? <laughs> <laughs> and with the same antagonists, pretty much. <laughs> yes, with similar antagonists and and then crossover antagonists. So Big beats in this play. First uh, 10 pages of the script, everyone's going into the woods for one reason or another. There's a bunch of notable characters that I will draw our attention to. They are familiar to us. Cinderella is here. Jack of Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack's mother, the baker and the baker's wife. Cinderella's stepmother. We have Little Red Riding Hood. Very notably, we have Witch or the witch, um, who kind of serves as uh, antagonist, but also ally. It's confusing, as the witch in many of these stories are. You have uh, the wolf from the Big Bad Wolf. You have Rapunzel. You have uh, the uh, <laughs> these princes of every story. Feels like uh, contained within two princes of this play. And, and I uh, want to give a, a huge shout out to Sondheim and Lapping for their decision as they wrote this script. Because how many scripts and stories throughout history have taken the women's roles and just called them like Joseph's wife. 
Right. Right. Yes. I mean, that's hugely sexist. It's been a problem for a long time. And in this script, they flip it on its head, and the princes are simply referred to as Cinderella's prince and Rapunzel's prince. I love uh-huh. it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Absolutely. And it turns out that they're even more than just Cinderella's and Rapunzel's princes, but we will get to that eventually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so all of these characters uh, find their way into the woods. Um, notably, probably, probably the strongest plot line of this is following the baker and the baker's wife and then probably a other contender would be Cinderella's storyline um we follow them a lot and the baker and the baker's wife runs a lot of the play they are asked by the witch to find a number of items for her um to uh she she needs them she doesn't specify what she needs them for yet but uh the reward is that she will lift a curse that she placed on the baker's house that uh his family tree would always be a barren one so the baker and the baker's wife really want to have kids and uh they can't right now and the witch claims responsibility for that and says she'll lift the curse if she if they find Find these items for her. So into the woods they go, and uh, every and in in the woods these characters all collide in story. Uh, they all deal with kind of different issues throughout and resolve them, kind of. By the end of Act One. By the kind end of, of Act One is right. That's kind yeah. of where the fairy tale, as we know it part of this story comes to a crashing halt. I actually, I, crashing is not the right word. I was trying to be cool there, but really it's a very happy, there's no crashing. Uh, they all succeed in their quests at the end of act one. They do. In a, in a song at the end of the act, you get like ever after, which is like, everything's fine now. We're all going to be okay. The story is ending. But we as the audience are sitting there at the end of act one and are like, was not aware Sondheim and Lapine wrote a one act. So, um, <laughs> well, actually, the junior version of Into the Woods does end there. It is a one act. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but we come back for Act Two, and Act Two, I think uh, I'll leave a lot of the synopsis of Act Two to our conversation. But essentially, the fairy tales begin to unravel. Real life takes over. Complications arise as a result of these uh, characters. Uh, having their fairy tales meddle, the biggest one that I'll draw attention to is Jack uh, going, Jack of Jack and the Beanstalk, going to the giant world, killing the giant. Um, the ramifications of him killing that giant uh, come to bear in the second act as one of the giants from the giant realm come to the ground and begin wreaking havoc. So that's a huge part of the second act is the kingdom grappling with that, out of which a bunch of other complications occur. That's right. And and so we have this world in which fairy tales are happening that we're watching that we conceivably believe we know the ending to. Uh, a, a good example of this is so when the witch meets with the baker and his wife and uh, she talks to them about how she can lift the curse, she gives them their list of items. The items are a cow as white as snow, uh, a cloak as red as something, maybe blood, I forget. Blood, yeah. And a uh, hair as yellow as corn, which is kind of a lame description. <laughs> there it is. And uh, a slipper as pure as gold. And so you hear those four things. And if you have any awareness of fairy tales at all or popular culture at all or communal stories at all, you immediately know where the baker and his wife are going to get those four things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You, you you piece it together pretty quickly. Um, the interesting thing is how they're all 
tied together in this world, right? Like, so, so yeah, the cow is notable from Jack and the Beanstalk. So you're like, oh, well, he, they, they got to go to him. But turns out Jack has his goal of, like, trying to save his family, which uh, he's walking through the woods to sell the cow for his mom, and that's how they find that item. So some of the joy of this play is discovering how they find these items as these stories cross over. Yeah, that's especially true of the first act. Some of the joy is how do these stories interact? So Jack is bringing his cow to sell at market. We know from the story, because everybody knows, that Jack ends up selling the cow for magic beans. So where did the magic beans come from? That's part of the joy. So where? Well, the baker and his family have been cursed because the baker's father stole magic beans from the witch's garden. So when the baker goes out to find these four items to lift the curse, he discovers in his father's cloak these magic beans are still around. Convenient, yes. But such is the world of the play. We live in a world right. of conveniences and into the woods. So yes. he goes out to find these items. Lo and behold, comes across Jack with the cow that they need, and he has magic beans in his pocket. So the famous character of Jack and the Beanstalks, the man who has the beans, becomes a character that we know and see in an entirely different context, i.e. the baker and his wife trying to have this child by lifting the curse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that, that continues throughout. The baker intervenes in Red Riding Hood's story. He turns into the hunter that we are used to in the Red Riding Hood story. And, and there's uh, even, the grandma even kind of makes a joke about that because she says, you know, you can, you, after the wolf is killed, she says, well, you can skin the wolf and keep the skin if you want, and the baker's sort of abhorred. And right. she's like, what kind of <laughs> hunter are you? <laughs> and then proceeds to skin the wolf herself and yeah. give it to Red Riding Hood. <laughs> so there's all of that kind that, uh, Kind of uh, uh, fulfilling, uh, amusing reward for us being familiar with fairy tales. I think that came up in our last conversation around Prelude to a Kiss. If you know some fairy tales, you'll be rewarded in this play because you'll see some of the kind of fun inner workings of this play as it unfolds. And then that familiarity ends. You know, part of what the story, the whole the whole play deals with is this question of what are the long-term consequences of these short-term stories that we see? So the main obvious example, as you gave, is, well, Jack climbs up the beanstalk, steals a bunch of stuff from these giants— Climbs back down, and then as we know in the famous Jack and the Beanstalk story, and this also occurs in the first half of the musical, he has to cut down the beanstalk because the giant is chasing him, and he kills that giant. Well, we know from the from the fairy tale Jack and the Beanstalk that, that Jack met the giant's partner up there, the giant's wife, and... So this play asks the question, well, what are the long-term consequences of you murdering this giant's <laughs> husband? What's going right. to happen? Well, she's going to come down. She's going to be a little bit upset about that. Yeah, absolutely. So there's like there's like physical consequences, right, of of <laughs> of killing and violence. Then there's also kind of consequences of wishing and idealizing something. And, and it's that be careful what you wish for or all magic comes at a price theme that we've talked about before in Magic Month here. It's uh, so that that seems to center around some of Cinderella's storyline. Cinderella, admittedly, with some trepidation throughout the first act, um, winds up getting what she wished for. She wished to go to the ball. She, you know, kind of idealized this life in a castle. And that is realized in her marrying the prince. 
Well, we see in the second act that it's maybe not all that she believed it could be, and that this uh, uh, this charming prince maybe isn't all that good of a prince. Well, it's interesting that Cinderella's storyline is one of the ones that takes a pretty immediate departure from the fairy tale we know and love, much more than the other stories. There's there's little departures all over the first act in all of the stories, but Cinderella's especially becomes very different right away. Now, I, I'll say straight up that I don't know the Brothers Grimm version of the Cinderella story. I don't know it very well. So if, if what I'm describing is the Brothers Grimm story, then that, that's fine. That's where they pulled this material from. But it still departs from the Disney cartoon version, the story, the version that's told in all the storybooks to all the little kids all over America, right? And in that version, Cinderella wants to go to the ball. She's got a cruel stepmother and cruel stepsisters. Yes, we know that from, from the story we all tell each other. But how does she get to the ball? Well, she has a fairy godmother. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> that is not what happens in Into the Woods. No, no, not at all. There's there's a couple di- distinctions for one of, one of the little ones is that her her father is still in the picture and is part. I my understanding of the story is the father was dead and the stepmother took over, but her yeah, her actual I'll father say that is there. I think there. that one varies. I've heard both versions of the story, whether the sure. father is still around, father's not still around. But you're right; they clearly have the father there. I'm not 100% sure why they bothered with that character. Yeah, yeah, he's got like two lines. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, (laughs) no long-term impacts on anything. (laughs) Yep. But the big impact, uh, uh, you're right to draw attention to the fact that there is no godmother in this play. Instead, it is, in fact, her mother, who is possibly a fairy, um, some being who lives in a tree, essentially, around a grave where, where her mother was buried that can grant wishes. So... There, there's some uh, uh, mechanical similarities in the character of her mother, but it's not a fairy godmother. There's not like a moment where a pumpkin becomes a carriage or anything like that. Um, she just kind of is empowered to go to the ball um, by this wish. Because she wishes for like the materials to be able to go to the ball. Fancy dress, fancy shoes, etc. But what not having the fairy godmother does is it, it takes away the time limit. Because in the famous Cinderella story that we all tell each other, and again, I I don't know whether this comes from Brothers Grimm or if this is sort of a rewrite, but in the story we tell each other of Cinderella, she has until what? The clock strikes midnight. That's a whole big deal. And that is why Cinderella runs away. And so the prince then has to chase her. That is not why Cinderella runs away from the palace in this version. No, no, it, it absolutely, I mean, in, in some ways it makes for a better character study because because she is, a Cinderella is for some reason running away every night, right? At midnight, which other aspects of this play include the timeline of midnight, but Cinderella's does not. So we, we, we meet midnight a couple times throughout this play, and at each time we do that, Cinderella's running away from the ball. And both we, and I think she asks the question of why <laughs> why are why am i running away why is she running away we we ask through the baker's wife who meets her on a number of occasions where she is like just all agog of the ball and wishing she could be around with the with the or or meet the prince and interact that way and cinderella is kind of uh underwhelmed i guess with the experience right yeah so we have this 
kind of departure of Cinderella from the Cinderella that we know and tell each other about, which is she also immediately falls in love with the prince dancing at this ball. And, oh, no, it's midnight. I've got to get away because I'm going to turn back into, you know, all these rags that I wear. And, and so right, she, right. she runs away and accidentally leaves this shoe behind. And that's how the prince finds her. Oh, this Cinderella, even in Act One, is not that same kind of story. Cinderella immediately says, I'm not sure that the story you all think that you're watching is the story I really want to live out. I'm not sure how I really feel about this prince. At one point, she says, we just danced all night. That's all we did. (laughs) Which, of course, is how the real story of Cinderella goes. But this Cinderella feels differently about that. Then, in the crucial, one of the really beautiful soliloquy songs of this musical, Cinderella describes what happens on the famous night that she loses her shoe. And she, the, the, the princess spread pitch on the ground to keep her there, which is questionable. <laughs> questionable. <laughs> but he did, I guess. And so she gets stuck in this pitch. And while she's stuck in the pitch, she's deciding, is this what I really want? I have to make a decision right now. Am I going to fight my way out of this pitch and escape, or am I going to allow myself to be swept into this palace life? What do I want? And that becomes one of the real questions for Cinderella. What do I want? And the soliloquy ends with indecision, which I think is beautiful. Hmm. So so I'm glad you brought up this this song, because this is one of my pet peeves about this show. Is... <laughs> <laughs> is this song, this song that um, is kind of treated as, I, I agree that it is thematically beautiful and draws attention to maybe you don't always need to make a choice, but I think this song is used as an empowerment uh ballad in some ways, in some of my, in some circles to be like that, 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 that this decision to not to decide is, is, um, is empowering in some way, but I, I have always experienced it as like a deferral to someone else to decide for you. Um, so, no, so I, I actually think you're right. I, I don't disagree with that at all. So the question is probably, and and maybe this is where the, our different points of view, because I love the song, sure, is sure. whether that is what is intended or not. Because if, if Sondheim and Lapping intend for Cinderella to be empowered by the decision to leave the shoe behind, then I think you're right. I think it comes off as far more indecision as Anand's giving up her agency in that choice. So they may have missed the mark. Or, and I think this is what I think, this is the moment where Cinderella fails to make a decision about what she actually wishes for. And we get to see this song about the fa- her failure to make a decision about the forward progress of her life. So she leaves the shoe behind and she does get swept up, not much of her own making. She lets somebody else make that decision. And the consequence of letting somebody else make that decision for her is played out in Act Two. That's a good point. So if you view it as kind of a as a a beat where we see it not working then see the the consequence or the 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 change or the progress in the character by act 2 i understand the song a lot more um but but yeah that that's always been a weird one for me cuz it's cuz uh, that 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 line where she's like talking about being trapped basically and trying to run away is always always one of like the the i know what my decision is is not to decide that paradoxical 
phrase is the one that always just drives me nuts in that song. <laughs> right. So Cinderella decides in the moment that she doesn't really want to make this crucial decision of her life yet. So instead, she doesn't stay, but she leaves behind a clue, uh, her shoe, the famous shoe, with the idea that now it's up to the prince. He can decide, is he going to find me? Is he not going to find me? And whatever happens, I'll go with. And that's that indecision that Cinderella decides on. <laughs> right. Um, and, and that's an important moment across the journey of Cinderella because her journey through the musical I think is a journey of what do I actually want what do I actually wish for mm-hmm. which is the journey of a lot of the characters in this play there's even the which even critiques pretty much every character that's left at that point uh in the, the second act of of being people who are not used to making decisions and who kind of follow consequences follow effects um, but then then eventually when they have to make a decision, it's hard for them. The baker has a really hard time uh, with his kind of, you know, nice morality um, stealing the coat from Red Riding Hood or buying the uh, cow from uh, Jack for, for just beans. Like he is asked over and over by both the witch and the wife. Uh, that That is a character <laughs> who just gets the, the baker's wife name. Um you know, do you want this enough? Do you, What do you want? Will you make a decision for this? Or will you just kind of like say that you want it but not act on it? Yeah, the question of what are you willing to do to achieve what you wish for is kind of the central question of Act 1. And then Act 2, as we've said a couple of times, kind of plays out the consequences of, okay, so you were willing to do this. Well, this is what it wrought. Is the wish that you achieved still worth the consequence, ultimately, of what you got? Because the baker and his wife get a child. It comes through deception. It comes through planting the beans that allow for the giant to come down out of the sky and kill a bunch of people. And ultimately, the baker's wife is one of the sacrifices in that slaughter. She mm-hmm. dies as a result of bearing out the consequences of the, what they did to achieve this wish. Mm-hmm. And then tied into that, then, is then there's, there's another decision that they all have to make, which is who to blame as a result, who to blame for this big problem in their lives. But, but really, all of the individual problems in their lives, too. There's that, that question of kind of taking responsibility that eventually uh, begins to be played out. And and one of the fascinating things that happens in Act 2 as they're grappling with this question is they kill a character. And it's a character that I haven't uh, introduced yet. Um, it's, it's the narrator. The narrator plays a common or a pretty prevalent role in the first two-thirds of this play. Um, he he, he kind of rolls in, says some lines that frame things, and he, he kind of serves as like the fairy tale of this play. Yeah, very but, traditional fairy tale narrator role. Steps out to describe, and then Cinderella was here, and she did this. The character also, in a different way than just doubling, like oftentimes the wolf and Cinderella's prince are doubled when you perform this show, I know. But that's not necessarily prescribed by the text. In this case, the narrator also is the mysterious man. 
And that's a prescribed entrance of the character into the story. The mysterious man ends up being the baker's father. He helps the baker and his wife achieve their goal of assembling all these things and getting the witch cured so the curse can be lifted. Throughout Act 1, the mysterious man dies at the end of Act 1, and so the narrator is, again, simply a third-party observer. Then in Act 2, they kill him. Yeah. <laughs> if, if if you don't figure out in act two by this, by the point that the narrator dies, that this is going to be a diversion from the fairy tale, <laughs> you figure it out then because they, they basically just serve the narrator up to the giant. Actually, they don't notably, I think the witch does, right? <laughs> they back down a little bit and it's the witch who like grabs him and throws him at the giant. Yeah, so the giant that has come down, again, this is the wife of the giant that Jack killed, come down to take revenge. And this giantess is here to specifically for Jack, to get her revenge on Jack. And so the in the storytelling, the giant is nearsighted, which is a feature, so can't really see all the way to the ground. So the group assembled of a variety of assembled characters. I couldn't even pretend to tell you who's all there at that point. <laughs> There's so many large groups, and it changes who's in the group and who's not that I, I just can't keep track so there's a variety of characters there at this point i think it includes the stepmother and the stepsisters and cinderella and the baker and blah 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 they decide well they they are debating well what do we do about this we can't just give him jack jack's a kid we're not just gonna murder this kid but we got to give the giant to somebody and so who are we going to give him to pretend that it's jack they all look at the narrator who may, starts to say, oh, yeah, I'm a third-party observer. It's, you know, I'm, I'm outside of the story. You can't involve me. And then, <laughs> weirdly, the characters drag them into the world of the story, and then you're right. They kind of back off. The narrator kind of makes a case for his life. Basically, I know the end of the story, and you don't. How, what are you going to do without me? Blah, blah, blah. Then the witch steps in. Yeah. <laughs> Again, like, and throughout the play, the witch steps in is is a could be a stage direction, um, or a, or a or a, or a director motivation for the actor, um, be, because uh, yeah, she serves up the narrator, and what that does is uh, it makes these characters kind of lose hope that there is a wish fulfillment, something working out there. That's going to bring about what they want and and forces them to continue to blame each other. That doesn't stop for a while, but it focuses the um, the locus of the story on the characters instead of on a meta plot that is that is unfolding with them in it. Yeah, and this is one of the magical elements of the story. There's the uh, magic in the plot, which is fairies, and we'll talk about that. Um, but then there's the magic of the storytelling, the breaking of the fourth wall, the involving of the narrator as a character entered into the story only at that moment, the awareness of the characters that there is a narrator telling their story. There's another moment where the fourth wall breaks that I think is is partially designed to set up this moment and it's at the very beginning of act two at the beginning of act two the characters sing a a reprise of the prologue of act one into the woods and where they're all describing their wishes uh, there's the there's cinderella there's jack then there's the baker and his wife and they're all singing about their various wishes at the beginning of act one and then that reprises in the beginning of act two and they tell us what's going on in their life what they still long for etc at the end of that reprise the house of the baker and his wife falls in on them 
crushes, crashes, you know, it basically explodes in on them. And the stage direction is that we're supposed to be momentarily unsure whether there's been a real accident on the stage. The other characters are supposed to look over at the baker and his wife, like, what, what's going on? And there's a moment where the audience is supposed to be unsure whether that was intentional or not, breaking the storytelling out into the real world. The audience, are they okay? Mm-hmm. Which is not a typical... A uh, thing that you want to do in theater. You almost always want to assure that whatever violence is happening on stage that the actors are okay. But this is almost, uh, I think we've done a Brecht play before, haven't we? Um, it's This is a, a kind of a Brechtian technique of, of kind of alienation from what's going on for a second and shocking you out for, so that you are ready to re-engage with this second act, which is going to be different. Yeah, immediately going to be different, right? Because they don't get through the song and go into the woods. Everything that they're aiming at or setting up to prepare for at the beginning of Act 2 is come to a crashing halt by the entrance of the giantess. And and the giantess is who actually has knocked over the baker and his wife's house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so so as long as we're right in in this area, as we're talking about magic, let's let's talk about the theme of let's let's name a couple things about the theme of magic in this play. Because we're in Magic Month. We've had a couple of kind of forming conversations around the theme of magic and magic systems within uh either works of literature, but specifically for our our purposes in plays. Um, let's. What do you think? What do you? Where do you think that this play falls on that spectrum? I think we talked about two different types of magic systems within this with within literature. Yeah. So to refresh everybody about kind of where we're at, if you haven't listened to the other episodes or if it's been a minute, we've been kind of taking our magical conversations off of a lecture given by Brandon Sanderson about the two poles, the two extreme ends of magic systems. One version of magic is where the magic is is mysterious. We don't really know how it works. We don't really know the rules. And within that magic system, we're more interested in the choices that the characters make in a magical world, not so much that the the characters use magic to achieve their goals or not achieve their goals. Then at the other pole, at the other end, there's this world where the magic system is very clearly understood. We know the rules. We know how it works. And so the plot is about watching how the characters manipulate and use magic to achieve their goals. I think we our previous two plays, Midsummer and Prelude to a Kiss, I think we both have kind of agreed that they fall into the magic as mystery end of that story. I think that Into the Woods falls very much to the other end of that story. A good example is what we've talked about. Once the witch tells the baker and his wife what they need to do to achieve their goal, this is how the magic works. If you bring me a cow, a cape, a slipper, and hair... Then you will get your, then I will lift the curse and you will bring your child back. The interest of Act One is about watching how they do those things. Right. I agree. I I think that they're still kind of residing in mystery. I think characters within this play don't really understand the magic, but, but our interest is in watching the witch somehow conduct this magic. The witch seems to be aware of the rules of magic enough to bring about something. And and we're interested in seeing those rules applied to, to the characters and to the lives of the characters. 
And I think Act 2 is a, a pretty similar thing, too. The question of how are we going to defeat the giantess is not a question of living in a big, mysterious, magical world, but a question of watching the characters manipulate the logic and the rules of the world around them to achieve a goal. Hmm, yeah, yeah. So, so the, yeah, the ramifications of magic used already, specifically the one being that went astray, um, that Cinderella kind of threw to the ground has brought about the consequences. So now, so now what do we do with, with the ramifications? How do we use these things? Also, how do we use these things without the, the witch, without the powers of the witch? Somehow her, her, uh, her, the cost for her magic or the cost for her wish was the loss of her magic. So, so now everyone's kind of grappling with, um, you know, they, they turn to the witch for help because she was kind of the, the leader of the magic in the play. And, and she's, she's not available to that anymore. And that's a classic element of these more detailed magic systems that reside less in mystery and more in mechanics is that when it, when the characters are into the climax of the story, one of the, their crucial powers is often removed at that Mm -hmm. moment. And you have to watch them grapple to try to, confront some obstacle without that power that they've had the whole time. So the witch is a great example of that. With the witch's power that is kind of the overriding power of the whole first act, the rug is pulled out from under that power. Now they have to accomplish this goal, defeat this enemy without that. Right. So so in the middle of of that, right? Like she's she's grappling with that what do I, I think the baker and his wife kind of have a, a, an interesting thing that they lose in the second act? Um, but but their tactics don't change a lot all that much, right? Like there's there's similar tactics to the start, at least of the act. Part of their journey is this journey about uh, the baker kind of being uh, patriarchal and like I will do this thing uh, by myself. And part of the journey in the first act is them. Um, Realizing that it takes two, a big song in in the first act is it takes two to get this to get this done. We'll work together and and we'll handle it. In the second act, they kind of go back to their old tactic as they're as they're trying to fix the problem at hand. Yeah, to some degree, right? Because the very beginning of Act Two, their house gets crushed, and so the baker basically says, "I need to go tell the palace." And the and the baker's wife with this child is not especially interested in just staying behind at that moment. And then as they go on into Act Two, there's a moment where they need to start looking for the giant. How we're going to find it? And the wife is the one kind of leading the plan again. We're going to separate. We're going to count off in a similar structural way to the way that it happened in Act One. She ends up kind of being the one to take charge and make things yeah. happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so they wind up separated for for the uh, the second part of the act again. And as it, it's this theme of like losing yourself in the woods comes up over and over, um, and and getting lost in the woods, it, both in the I am lost sense, but also in the kind of moral. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the the moral way as well. You lose some some part of yourself. You have experiences that you're not expecting to, and you find something out about yourself when you're alone in the woods. When you're separate from your community, excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you're separate from your community, you went into in the, the woods. woods on that sentence. <laughs> I did. I just. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're right. the The woods is a, a very 
I think maybe even sometimes a little obvious metaphor of the musical. It's a it's very clear. It's this idea of a world that's dark and full of lots of different paths to take and hard decisions and where you can pursue your wishes, but there are going to be hard choices presented to you in the woods about these wishes and these choices you're going to make in the way that fairy tales do, where they're not moral parables per se, but they do have this metaphoric relationship to reality. Into the Woods presents this idea that as we watch these characters pursue fairy tale challenges, wishes, goals, and obstacles, going to the festival, having my cow have milk, lifting this curse, fighting a giant, we see this metaphoric relationship to our reality too. What are we pursuing in the woods, in this dark, tangled world? And what choices are we going to have to make in the woods in order to come out of it on the other side? And what... What things are alluring in a good way and alluring in a bad way in the woods? And, and, and is, there, is there room in the middle somewhere of, of good and bad as well? Like, are, it's, it's not a kind of a, it's not an easy choice to make when presented with these things. There can be a lot of right answers and a lot of wrong answers or just, just answers. Like uh, Red Riding Hood story, for instance, uh, we haven't talked about too much, but she kind of goes on this journey of... Uh, disillusionment with some of the choices that she wants to make. Like she wants to be adventurous and go off by herself and and stray from the path and meet the wolf because there's some things that he kind of tempts her to go and experience. Um, but she she kind of becomes she the way she reacts to those to being eaten by the wolf is to become this like kind of death machine a little bit. It's not talked about a whole lot, but she's wearing uh, in the second act a uh, uh, a cloak of wolf skins, plural. It's not just the one skin that Granny gave her. She's like, now, now bears a knife and goes through the woods and wants to kind of kill things more than she did before. And so th- there's some of the consequences that you see of that choices in her life as she's she grapples with them in the second act as she starts to live in community with the baker and Jack. Right, so her story ends early in Act 1, too, rather than ending at the end of Act 1 like many of the other fairy tale stories do. The baker, as the hunter character in the famous Red Riding myth, saves her and Grandma from the belly of the wolf in like the first third of the play. And so already in Act 1, I think we're kind of getting primed for seeing that we're going to watch a world after the end of these fairy tales because we see Red Riding Hood after being saved from the wolf. And you're right, it's kind of reinvigorated her view on life. One of the things that she struggles with is, well, this thing happened to my grandma and I because I strayed from the path. I should have gotten to grandma's house on time, but instead I picked flowers and the, the wolf had basically convinced her to wander a little bit in the woods. And so by the time she got there, grandma had already been eaten, the wolf was already disguised, etc. So she grapples with this idea that because I was wandering and I was distracted, uh, this terrible thing happened. So you see a kind of focused Red Riding Hood wearing wolf skin come back on. Yeah, yep. And 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 that kind of 
flavors her relationship with the world for the rest of the play. Everything that happens to these characters, the other one, the other big one that we haven't talked about is the the kind of heavy theme of parenting from the witch and Rapunzel. Um, where and from all the characters, really, it, it's pretty tough to find, and in fact, might be impossible to find any of these stories that don't involve a significant relationship between parents and children. That may be one of the important themes of the play is parenting. Mm-hmm. And the, how the choices made in parenting, again, have ongoing ramifications that you don't necessarily foresee. And how the choices that you make in parenting um, while are, are born out of often good desires or something, something at least that from your perspective feels like the right choice. The witch keeps Rapunzel in a tower because she doesn't want the world to... Uh, to to hurt her, um, you see kind of the argument of the mysterious man repeated in the baker. Once the baker's wife has died, he tries to give away his child to Cinderella because his argument is, well, I'm terrible at being a father. This, this child cries all the time that I hold it and it will have a much better life with Cinderella. So I'll just leave. And you begin to see that the, that was the same argument that the father had when or that the baker's father had when he left the baker. And really, you see all of the characters have that thing happen to them where they make a bad decision, a selfish choice, a wrong choice, and their kind of heroic status in the history of fairy tale dumb gets eroded <laughs> a little bit, right? The baker's wife has an affair. The baker, like you just says, abandoned his responsibility to his friends and to his child to sort of run off on his own. Even Little Red Riding Hood, who's more or less a victim in her story, is, is parading around in these wolves' clothing. And later on, the witch basically says, well, you kill a bunch of wolves, don't you? And Little Red Riding Hood says, well, a wolf is different. And the witch says, not to a wolf's mother. <laughs> Yeah. So so this is like, you know, three fourths of the way through the play. Everyone is still kind of in this mess of of dealing with what has happened, even even down to the witch. The witch uh, kind of meets her uh, Rapunzel. Rapunzel comes back from exile. That storyline could have been all, like we've we've talked before about what it would be like if someone went back and wrote plays about plays from different perspectives. The Rapunzel storyline is a really in this play turns the myth really interestingly and and has interesting consequences but the short version is she comes back and she's gone completely crazy because of the kind of uh stockholm syndrome that she experienced with her mother and runs and kills her is killed by the giant and squished so the witch is dealing with these ramifications throughout the play as well so it takes kind of the joining together of the purpose to save jack for these characters which excluded because the witch really wants to kill Jack uh, <laughs> to to bring them to some sort of shared goal that that uh, synthesizes their wishes into something healthy by the end of the play. Yeah, moral ambiguity and more, what is morally right and wrong? What can we or can't we do in pursuit of our end goals is just throughout the play. At the, at the very beginning, this is kind of sets up this question. The baker and his wife have just traded Jack beans in exchange for the cow. Now, they are truly magic beans, but they didn't know that. 
And so when the wife said, hey, these are magic beans, she was, for all intents and purposes, lying. They had no, they had no sense that they actually were magic beans. So the baker, after the exchanges John and Jack has left, the baker is really distressed about this. We can't just lie our way to having a child, can we? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm, I'm, we, can't, we don't want to deceive and steal and things like that. And the baker's wife sings this kind of seduction, it's all, it's all all right, it's all gray song, in which comes this quote, which I think becomes a really important uh, way to understand some of the rest of what happened. She says, she sings, I'm not going to sing it, but I'll say it. If the thing you do is pure in intent, if it's meant, and it's just a little bent, does it matter? Mm-hmm. That's that's in some ways the core question of the play <laughs> is is the how are how you go about accomplishing the thing that you want does it matter? And or the witch if, echoes that same idea later on, right? When all the characters are pointing fingers, you did this, no, you did this, and it's all your fault, it's all your fault, it's all your fault. The witch interrupts them to sing this song that's basically along the same lines about moral ambiguity because the witch is saying we should just let the giantess kill Jack. Then she'll mm-hmm. go away and she won't kill a bunch more people. And the witch says, "You're." she sings, again, I'm not going to sing it. She says, you're so nice, you're not good, you're not bad, you're just nice. I'm not good, I'm not nice, I'm just right. Mm-hmm. That line is one of two that stand out in this play for me. That that like whenever I think of this play, it's like, oh yeah, that's a, that's one of the big themes I take away from this play is that you know the the choice to just be nice for these people <laughs> is is damaging something. Um, and the witch kind of comes out ahead a little bit, and that at least for me in that scene, the witch kind of comes out a little bit ahead, even though she basically just kind of parachutes out after that scene. She doesn't engage with the world anymore. But um, that that critique of them is is kind of a a wake up call for for some people, right? Like it's you know the call to make a choice, make a choice, live with the consequences of it. But you're kind of sitting around in this, like, blame game of trying to, you know, cast the right blame on the right person that hurts the least people is not actually helping. There's people actually getting hurt. The blame game doesn't matter. And there's tough choices ahead, and being good or bad or is not going to be as important as being right. It's making right. the right choice to, to do the right thing in mm-hmm. a very gray, you know, dark in, in the woods. In the woods. And that pays off for the four characters. There's there's other characters that are left alive, but for all intents and purposes, the four main characters that are left alive at the climax of the scene, Jack, the Baker, Cinderella, and Little Red Riding Hood. If you think that I'm missing some characters, you can just assume they're all dead. There's a large (laughs) amount of death in the second act. And many people die. <laughs> some by the giantess, some by other characters. That's uh-huh. some of the moral ambiguity of, you know, how how villainous is the giantess. She's killed some people, but also so has, like, the steward the just steward. cracked people over the head. We haven't talked about it at all. So there's there's <laughs> lots of killing and lots of death and slaughter. But ultimately, those four characters are left to confront the giant. And... Little Red Riding Hood and Cinderella sing this duet about about basically their 
the the hard decision they have to make to kill this person. Little Red Riding Hood is having second thoughts about killing the giantess after having been so accused about killing the wolf that mm-hmm. well he was still killing. And so she's kind of come around to this point of view. Well, it's still killing. Do I do I really want to kill this giantess? And Cinderella doesn't offer a lot of of advice on the moral question, but she sings the beautiful ballad that uh, later will be sung by the baker and Jack on a similar question. You're not alone. You're not alone in the woods, in the moral gray area, in the ambiguity, in the hard choices. You're not alone. Then the baker and Jack have that exchange as well. The baker tells Jack that the steward killed Jack's mother. And Jack says, well, I'm going to kill the baker, or the steward. And the baker says, well, you can't really do that. And Jack says, why not? He killed my mother. And the baker says, well, that's not, that's not really right. And Jack says, why not? <laughs> and again, the baker doesn't have a lot of good moral advice or argument to make, but he sings that same ballad, you're not alone. The mm-hmm. hard choices you're not alone for. Right, right. I think the baker tries a little bit harder than Cinderella necessarily to like because because uh, Jack is like actively saying I'm going to go kill the steward. So he tries to talk him down from it. But again, that refrain of "You're not alone" seems to be seems to be the the through line at the end. Like we're we're all kind of in this together now, and and that kind of is uh, momentarily fought with with the idea that the baker's wife is dead um that 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 there's a tension there right like the baker is kind of alone for a a bit i mean you could you could conceive that that is how the baker is feeling alone and but that is then answered by one of the other lines that sticks out to me in this play which is the uh sometimes people leave you halfway through the woods line and and that there's still something afterwards you still have to stick you have to find the people that you're not alone with even though the person who you were sharing it with is gone. Right, like that's- and that's true of all four characters. The baker has lost his wife. Jack has lost his mother. Little Red Riding Hood has lost her grandmother. And Cinderella, though the death in her life of her mother happened a long time ago, she has just learned that the prince has been unfaithful to her. So she's lost that relationship too. So all four of these important central ensemble characters have come to the climax of the show and have these hard moral decisions both ahead of them still and behind them and they sing this foursome song you're not alone yep which then the whole cast kind of swells around and and uh, yeah <laughs> the, the line someone is on our side um eventually comes comes to the forefront you are not alone so finding the people who are on your side that you want to join with becomes one of the one of the there's a lot of themes in this play that kind of call you to action but that is the last one at least that I that sticks in my head for this play and of course it it kind of comes to a head as those four characters decide to live together in the wake of the giant finally being killed and all these people being dead Cinderella leaves her prince and they decide that they're going to they're going to live together share life together help to raise the baker's child together because they're not alone in the woods. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. And Jack and Little Red Riding Hood and they're all yeah, they're all they're kind of this little family now. Interestingly though, at that last moment they return to fairy tale again. The baker begins to tell the story of what happened to them to his child, the the, the unnamed child, um, in this in this play. Um, 
in the format of a fairy tale. He starts he what they have thrown off, right? The narrator. Um, they they kind of acknowledge some of the worth again in this last scene. The ghost of the baker's wife comes to him and kind of tells him to tell the story. And that is what calms the child. That's what kind of unifies this new little family to go forward. That's right. And the kind of the storytelling continuing forward is one of the ways that the play ends because, of course, the last line of the play is Cinderella again saying, I wish. Yeah. Which is how this whole stinking thing started. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like a Marvel Avengers bonus scene at the end. <laughs> like, after the credits roll, you go back, like, somehow she's at the, the place where the trees have fallen down over her mom's grave and you see, I wish. It's like, no, don't do it again. Stop <laughs> <laughs> Well, that is probably all the time we have for this conversation. Into the Woods, very popular musical. It's playing near me in the next year. I'm sure it's playing somewhere near you in the next year. Go see it. See what you think if you've been in it or read it and you have some opinions. We want to have that conversation with you as well because this is this musical is really ripe for conversation. For all the silliness and goofiness and sometimes little too convenientness and cheesiness <laughs> of the of the fairy tale musical, it has some real lessons about reality and moral ambiguity and and hard choices and coming together that that I think are, are important and worth hearing. Mm-hmm. And it's just a fun play. Like it we, is. We, it's so we were, fun. <laughs> we were pretty thematic in our discussion, which is good because this is a really rich play. But there's just like good characters that are fun to play. No wonder this play is done in community theaters because, you know, the wolf is fun to play. The princes who are not worth really talking about thematically are so fun to play. <laughs> That's right. And, <laughs> and this is as ensemble based a show yeah. as I know. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure there are others, but not much better than this. There, It's very hard to pick out lead characters. You might say the baker and his wife are the leads, but, you know, I think you have to say it with that tone of voice. Yeah. They're the leads <laughs> because there's a lot of really important characters, and I would guess stage time is shared darn close to equally among the main five or six. So if you've been in this play and played one of those characters or just love this play and want to continue the conversation or want to draw some uh, dissimilarities between some of what we discussed about and the movie because the movie adaptation had some kind of different themes in there for us to grapple with than the uh, the Broadway version does. If any of that sounds like fun to you, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and continue the conversation with us. The username on all those are at NoScriptPodcast. And then we have a Gmail as well, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites and we'd love to keep having the conversation about Into the Woods with you. If you like this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes from Magic Month or any of our episodes, please do us the honor of sharing them. Either share them on your social media or tell your friends about them. That's one of the ways the NoScript community grows. And man, it is growing. And we are just so excited every week to see our community get bigger and bigger. So help us out with that. You can find our podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. That's for you to tell other people. You've already found the podcast. Tell other people where they can find it on those four places every monday we do have that new episode posted on facebook for you so you can just grab it from our facebook page and that'll take you right on over to podbean to listen 
And tune in next week for the final installment of Magic Month. Magic is in the air. I don't know. That's not from anything. I just made yeah. that up. So <laughs> nice work. Anybody out there who wants that little uh, riff, you can have it <laughs> just, for just. a one dollar a month donation at no script <laughs> at patreon.com slash no script podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Nice, uh, nice, nice well, work. I, I got oh. it in there right at the end. So head yep. on over there to support us, please, and you can enjoy the copyright of that rift. Yes, and tune in next week for Angels in America, the last play of our Magic Month. But until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We'll see you next week. See ya. See ya.